This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So today, um, given it's the first meeting of the new year, 2020, I thought I'd um, give a little talk on the uh, what are known, uh, known in Zen Buddhism, in Japanese Zen Buddhism, as the Four Seals. And um, if you want to um, actually get a uh, have a look at this in the New Yorker original. Japanese Zen teacher called Kosho Uchiyama. Let's call that one Opening the Hand of Thought. It's um, quite an understandable, easy to read book and gives you a nice introduction to Japanese Soto Zen from a, a teacher who was um, spoke English quite well and was acquainted with Western philosophy. Um, So four seals, seal, the word seal, um, like in the old English tradition where people might have sealed envelopes with some wax. In the Japanese tradition, they had uh, like a stamp, which was like a, a, a public kind of um, legal document where you'd stamp your name or an artist would stamp their name. You'll see those little red seals on, on Japanese works of art. And uh, everyone apparently would, many most people would have their own seal. So, four seals of Buddhism, it's kind of like the four stamps of Buddhism. Uh, what identifies uh, Buddhist teachings? What are the four essential principles which identify Buddhist teachings? And so, um, you'll get um, Uchiyama's version in the that today I'll give my version, which is Every teacher would you know, say things slightly differently. Each lineage will say things slightly differently. And in a sense, you have to personalize all this for yourself. Um, the first seal, which I'm sure you're all very familiar with, is um, life is suffering. The, uh, the second seal is impermanence. Um, the third seal is not-self, or sometimes uh, you'll see that as interdependence of everything. And the fourth seal is uh, Nirvana. And uh, so every, every Buddhist teacher, every Buddhist lineage, you'll, there'll be the four kind of principles you'll always find. 
and which is what uh, marks off, I guess, Buddhism from maybe other other religions. But um, again, uh, the meanings of these words are always very subtle because they're always coming down from one translation to another, from one culture and historical period to another. And in a sense, we always have to uh, make them the, our own in each generation. The word suffering, uh, which comes from the, uh, the Sanskrit word dukkha, again, it's, uh, dukkha is a very difficult word to translate. And uh, it's normally translated as suffering. Sometimes it's translated as dissatisfaction or... Disease, disease, disease. Um, um, but it's a funny, it's a funny kind of uh, expression. You know, life is suffering. It's not something we generally want to hear. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the Buddha taught. Uh, you know, some people say you can summarize the Buddha's teachings in the expression, "I teach suffering in the end of suffering." So. On the one hand we have suffering, on the other hand we have nirvana, which is the end of suffering. And uh, in a way we might see the, the second and the third seal, impermanence and no self, or the, in a way, uh, no self just refers to the impermanence of, of self. It's the sense in which there's no permanent entity in, a, in here. Uh, or in here that is permanent, that we can call the self. And uh, I guess in a way, whether, our, whether we experience uh, uh, suffering or, or we experience nirvana or, or we experience samsaric, suffering is often called, sometimes called samsara, which is the, this notion of uh, um, whether it's transmigrating through one day and going through different states of mind or emotions or feelings or transmigrating from one life to another as in classical Buddhist teachings. Um, the idea is in samsara we're caught on this sort of never-ending cycle of suffering and, um, and uh, nirvana at the end of suffering is different and again different interpretations of that but uh, in our tradition, in the Zen Buddhist tradition, which falls within the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism, the tradition which comes from China and Tibet, um, the teaching is that uh, samsara, the world that we live in uh, can be experienced as samsara or nirvana. It's not that nirvana is someplace else. Uh, the teaching is Nirvana is here and now, in this body, in this lifetime. Um, so in a way, uh, if we think of impermanence and interdependence as being uh, descriptions of the reality that we live in, then how we... Uh, how our Buddhist practice helps us to live in that reality and be with that reality, I think makes a difference between whether or not we experience a lot of suffering or whether we experience or samsaric states 
or whether we experience more uh, nirvanic states or more peaceful states. In fact, what's often referred to as nirvana is often not, as, not even seen as being a state. So, um, in a sense, um, another way of thinking of uh, um, samsara or suffering is that everything is changing all the time. So everything is coming and going. And, uh, and the, if, you, if you look at the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, the second truth which talks about how suffering arises, it's often, sometimes it's summarized as desire, but often it's this notion of are you either attached or clinging or hanging on or holding on to something, or you're pushing away something. So in that sense, you know, like uh, even very pleasurable, even happiness can be a form of suffering from that perspective because maybe we want to, we want to hang on to that happiness, we want to hang on to that pleasure. And they're all states which come and go. So every state comes and goes. Even what are sometimes referred to in the, in the Zen literature when you come across what are referred to sometimes as enlightenment experiences, Kensho's or Satori's, even they come and go. Um, so in a sense, uh, enlightenment is not, is not a state of any kind um, because it can't be something which comes and goes. Everything which comes and goes, everything which is impermanent, really, uh, is, is, is a bit like a little bit like a dream, it's a little bit like an illusion, it just comes and it goes. Has no, there's no substantial reality to it. So how we face impermanence in our lives, how we practice with impermanence, uh, is one of the fundamental questions uh, uh, that we explore in our practice. And um, and often the, the difficulty, the main difficulty lies in our identification as a separate self, which is the, the third seal. We don't see that the, that the separate self itself is, is um, not real and it's very deeply conditioned in us that sense of separateness from uh, childhood onwards so when buddhism talks of no self it's more it's it's more about how the self mutually arises within a context so there's no there's no baby without the caregiver um, uh, there's no self without another um, so right from the get-go, um, uh, the sense of self is, is, is something which is constantly coming and going. We have different self-states, we have sad states, we have angry states, we have happy states, we have all these different uh, thoughts which come and go. We, and, um, and when we live in, in with each other, uh, when we get caught in 
this notion of self-referentiality, of referring to the separate self, the separate I. Um, and there's an, and a separate other. Uh, most of, a lot of our suffering comes from how we feel hurt, how we feel pain in those relationships, and uh, how we, uh, we can see how that sense of a separate self is so deeply conditioned within us. And uh, so our practice is to, is to, is to, is to, is to explore or inquire into through our meditation practice and through this, what we call just sitting, and also how we experience ourselves in our everyday life. Um, so in a sense, the um, nirvana or the nirvanic experience, um, if, if nirvana is not something which comes and goes, then what is it? Um, in Buddhism, you'll often find expressions say the, that which is unborn and undying. Um, in other words, um, it doesn't, the unconditioned is not something which comes into existence and then goes out of existence. So the unconditioned is not a thought. A thought comes into existence and comes out of existence. It's not a sensation. A sensation comes into existence and goes out of existence. Sounds, visuals, they come into existence and go out of existence. Uh, but we construct our world and our language as if there were actual things that existed. We have these nouns, a tree, a bird, and a human being, Jason, Jill. And our language tends to construct the world as if there were separate things. And, uh, and we experience ourselves as an object subject and experience others as objects. So we have that basic subject-object duality which is constructed by our language. And in Buddhism that's referred to normally as conventional reality or relative reality. And in a way that's the world of samsara. It's the world of suffering. It's the world of separation. It's the world of conflict. It's the world of people having domestic fights, nations going to war with each other. Uh, it's the, that duality which creates a lot of this suffering for human beings. So what is it that doesn't come into existence nor go out of existence? We, we call it different words, we call it the unconditioned. Uh, we can also, it's something which um, everything we experience, uh, so experience is changing all the time, but what is it that's experiencing? See, what we call awareness or consciousness, we can't actually see it or observe it because it's not an object. So in some ways, awareness itself is not something which comes into existence or goes out of existence. It's like the, the mirror which reflects. The, the mirror is often a term that's used in, in Buddhism. Uh, the sense in which... Uh, Awareness is already always inherently free, so that, in a sense, we might have a thought or an emotion which rises, and we get caught in that emotion, and we get identified with that emotion, but it still it comes and goes, it might last for a while, then it goes. So if the emotion is one of anger, 
or it can't and, and uh, but when it's gone the awareness is still here so in a sense um, the awareness is always free of that anger but it's also intimately one with it as well it's the paradox it's both inseparable from the anger but also free from the anger and this is something we have to verify for ourselves in our, in our, in our practice. Uh, so in a sense, what we call nirvana or freedom is another word for it. We're already free. Uh, but what blocks us from experiencing that freedom, what obscures that freedom, is these various vexations that we get pulled into and we get identified with. And then we move out of that sense of non-separation into a sense of uh, separation. And that's when the, we start to um, experience um, suffering. I'll a quote here from a, a Tibetan uh, Buddhist teacher called James Lowe, who teaches in the, in the Dokchan tradition, which is very similar to Zen. Speaking of a samsara, he talks about samsara is the attempt to stabilize that which can never be stabilized, and so there is no end to it. While we are struggling to do the impossible, we are not attending to the one thing which is stable, the door to nirvana. So our practice, if we want to find stability, the only way we're going to find stability is in that door to nirvana. That's where we take our refuge. We can never but most of the time, if we're trying to find refuge in that which comes and goes all the time, we're trying to find refuge within our points of view or our thoughts or our emotions, we're never going to find stability there. So awareness itself, of course, has no viewpoint. Awareness is just awareness. It's just this. It's not a thought. It's not a viewpoint. So, um, in a sense, we're continuously moving in and out of these samsaric states all the time. Maybe we just get glimpses of nirvana to begin with, and we just find it very difficult to stabilize ourselves there because we're constantly being pulled out of it all the time. But, but Zen, like all non-dual spiritual traditions, says we are already complete, we're already whole. It's not something we have to cultivate or create or produce. It cannot be produced. It's uh, unconditioned. Anything which is unconditioned cannot be created or produced. So each moment we have to awake to the reality of impermanence and no self. Each moment we're waking up, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's lifelong. It's a lifelong process of awakening. Awakening is not an event which happens one day and that we're fine for the rest of our lives. Awakening is our practice. That's why Dogen called practice realization. didn't separate the two out. You can't separate. You don't practice to become enlightened. It doesn't work like that. It's not a technique. Practice and enlightenment or practice and realization are always this moment. There's never any other um, because we're always here in this timeless awareness, in this timeless presence. Can't be anywhere else. So each moment is we are entering the door, or we're getting caught back into the realm of samsara.
like James Lowe says in this paragraph, you can't grasp the moment, but you can be present in it as it is. You can inhabit it directly or indirectly. This next line is very similar to our practice principles. So, directly inhabiting the moment is called nirvana, and indirectly inhabiting the moment is called samsara. Directly inhabiting the moment is called nirvana, and indirectly inhabiting the moment is called samsara. When we're directly inhabiting the moment, there's non-separation from the moment. As Joko says in the practice, being just this moment, compassion's way. When we disconnect from the moment, we create the gap, and we create the gap of duality, or we're separate again, and we suffer. <coughs> he says again, it is not that we fell into samsara a long time ago, and now we are struggling to get out of it, as if it were some hellish nightmare. Samsara begins and ends each second, each moment. A thought arises, you fall into it, and there is samsara. The thought ends, and in that very moment, there is space. And if you are present in the space, samsara has gone. Then you see that there is no wall between samsara and awakening. They are not fundamentally different. The suffering of samsara arises because although we somehow know that we are infinite and unchanging, in our effort to establish the stability of what we take to be our identity, we unhelpfully project our longing for unchanging being onto our individual ego self. An aspect of experience which is, which is in fact always changing. So in a way the, the ego self this sense of separateness, spaciousness, longing for continuity. It's a sense, we have an intuition of continuity, but the ego self is a distortion of that. And, and, and it creates that separateness and we create the suffering. So in a sense, the, the only, the, the unchanging is what's the, un, the unborn and the undying, the unconditioned. And each, each moment is our opportunity to realize that. 